Welcome to the CSIS Cogite Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Coulson. In this episode, we evaluate the prospects of a U.S.-China trade war. Trade friction between the United States and China is clearly on the upswing right now. From Washington, President Trump's administration has taken several steps he says will address trade imbalances with Beijing. Today, I'm defending America's national security by placing tariffs on foreign imports of steel and aluminum. We will have a 25% tariff on foreign steel and a 10% tariff on foreign aluminum when the product comes across our borders. Here at the CSIS Asia program, we wanted to give listeners a sense of what a trade war actually looks like and see how an extended Sino-U.S. trade clash might play out. To do this, we turn to two experts, CSIS Shoal Chair in International Business, Bill Wrench, and CSIS Simon Chair in Political Economy, Matthew Goodman. Bill and Matt are well positioned to explain the policy tools of such a conflict between the U.S. and China, and the uncertainty in decision-making that might spark a trade war that would impact the entire global economy. In the conversation, you'll hear them give the cliff notes on an actual trade war. Hint, it involves chickens and LBJ. They will assess the Trump administration's recently announced tariffs on steel and aluminum, and the possibility of Section 301 trade penalties on Chinese imports of technology and telecommunications equipment. Bill and Matt also described the constraints that might prevent a conflict from spinning out of control, the collateral damage to U.S. partners and allies and the U.S. economy that might occur, and they explain where the possibility of such a conflict leaves the World Trade Organization and the G20. Later, you'll also hear from Dr. Scott Kennedy, Deputy Director of the CSIS Freeman Chair in China Studies and Director of our Project on Chinese Business and Political Economy, analyzing the details of President Trump's announcement of the Section 301 penalties on China and the continuing spiral towards an outright Sino-U.S. trade war. My colleague Jeff Bean caught up with them. A good day. My name is Jeffrey Bean. I'm editor of the CSIS Asia Policy Blog, Kajit Asia, and producer of this podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by Bill Wrench, uh, Senior Advisor and Shoal Chair in International Business at CSIS. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And Matthew Goodman, Senior Advisor and Simon Chair in Political Economy uh, here at CSIS. Matt, welcome back to the pod. Good to be here, Jeff. So our topic today is in line with the zeitgeist of the moment, as fleeting as that may be. Uh, as we look to assess the possibility of a pending trade war between the United States and the People's Republic of China. Now, I think it's important to frame this in the right context so all of us, including our listeners, are on the same page. And the phrase trade war is thrown about quite a bit uh, in the media, but never in entirely clear terms. And so for our listeners out there, Bill, I want to start with you. What is a trade war, actually? Well, to begin with, it takes two. Or, or more than two, not one. It starts when somebody does uh, takes a trade limiting action, usually blocking the imports of um, another country or countries for any number of reasons. Sometimes it's blatant uh, and you just do it because you don't want the competition. Sometimes you descri- disguise it as a health standard or a safety standard, but the effect is the same. Uh, and then the war really starts if the other country retaliates and if the other country decides that it's been treated badly and it's going to do the same back. Uh, the most famous war was the so-called chicken war, which began uh, really in the early late 50s and early 60s when the Europeans adopted a variety of protectionist limitations 
on the importation of American chickens. And after diplomacy failed and we couldn't fix that, uh, President uh, Johnson uh, uh, retaliated with a substantial tariff on brandy and trucks, uh, light trucks, and one other thing. Uh, and this was a classic example of trying to target your retaliation at the, the people whose behavior you wanted to change. He was trying to pick out products that the French and the Germans made because they were behind the chicken ban uh, that would hurt them. And uh, it succeeded. It knocked Volkswagen trucks out of the market. Uh, it knocked uh, a lot of French brandy out of the market. Uh, and it kept our chickens out of the market because the, you know, the Europeans didn't, didn't drop the ban. So that war now has been going on really for 50 years, and we still have a 25% tariff on trucks. Now, though, it hurts the Japanese uh, a lot more than it hurts the Germans. So sometimes wars have unexpected consequences if they go on for a long time. The one that is worrisome is if you get into a cycle of retaliation and counter-retaliation. The chicken war stopped with one move by each side. The United States did not come back. Uh, you know, the Germans did not come back and embargo pigs, you know, or cattle. They stopped, and we stopped with the trucks, and it's, it just sat there. Uh, if you get into a counter-retaliation, counter-counter-retaliation back and forth, then you get this sort of descending spiral of more and more trade restrictions, which ultimately has uh, potentially big economic consequences. Uh, so back in November, uh, the U.S. Commerce Department initiated an anti-dumping, countervailing duty investigation uh, against China on uh, aluminum sheet alloy, uh, the first of this type of investigation in over 25 years. And as we're recording this podcast today, uh, the U.S. has announced it will enact a 25 percent tariff on steel and a 10 percent tariff on aluminum. Uh, that's likely. It's, it's not exactly clear when it's going to take effect. Perhaps in the next 15 days, there may be carve-outs for allies. We can talk a little bit about that. But China is the target country uh, of this action. Uh, it's pretty clear. Can you explain to listeners uh, what the difference is between some of the various tools that the Trump administration uh, could bring to bear against China and has already chosen to do so? And then in turn, what are some of China's options to respond against U.S. actions uh, sort of following the tit for tat that you outlined, Bill? The standard conventional tools are tariffs and quotas. You identify products and you put on a tariff, which is in effect a tax uh, expressed in the form of a percent, and it effectively raises the price. Maybe not by the full amount. It depends on what the foreign producer decides to do. If he decides to lower his price and eat part of the tariff, that's a possibility. The alternative is a quota, which just limits the quantity that can come in. Um, that is a more complicated tactic because then somebody has to decide uh, who gets to produce the, the now limited quantity. In other words, you have to allocate the quota. Um, sometimes the country setting the quota will do that. Sometimes they let other people do it. Um, and you can make money off of that if you're the other government by basically charging a fee for, for the quota or in, in some countries a bribe. Uh, there are other means. To, uh, in the case of China, if you're talking thinking about rumors for the uh, possible upcoming war, uh, the other likely uh, tactic will be restrictions on investment because uh, the president is concerned about uh, technology transfer. And the, the basis for the investigation of China right now is Section 301, which in this case is about acts, policies, or practices that are discriminatory 
uh, or inconsistent with their obligations. And in this case, it in involves forced technology transfer and IP theft. And in those cases, if you uh, restricted in inward investment might be a response. Um, so those are the biggest tools. There are others, but those are the main ones. Yeah, there are one or two other things that are being rumored they're looking at, like um, restricting visas for you know Chinese either business people or students. Um, not clear whether that's going to happen or whether that's even you know something that um, you know is uh, it may be legal, but it may not be really the right sort of thing to be focusing on in a trade uh, context. But that's you know so they've been talking about a few other things. As for the Chinese response. Um, Again, China can do a number of things, and based on its past practice, you'll probably see uh, a range of things, including some informal um, uh, responses, retaliation in the form of, you know, per perhaps uh, that next purchase of aircraft for Chinese airlines goes to Air Airbus instead of Boeing. Uh, they may uh, somewhat more explicitly uh, restrict uh, imports into China of soybeans. Uh, or other agricultural products uh, that they buy from us. Um, they um, will probably, in those contexts, target uh, export sectors from the United States where there are strong political um, implications here in the United States where the voice of uh, U.S. Um, industry or agriculture is, is powerful or gets to supporters of the president in particular, um, for example, those agricultural states that supported him in the election. Um, and so the Congress people in those states may scream if, if China goes after those products. He may also go after manufacturing um, experts other than Boeing aircraft like cars and so forth. And then he, they might also um, they might also target uh, investors in China, um, U.S. investors, um, companies that have um, activity on the ground. There's already a you know, concern among those companies that there's lack of regulatory transparency, that there's an arbitrary use of you know, anti-competitive regulations and so forth um, against uh, American and other foreign companies. And so they could ratchet up some of that to send a message to, um, uh, to the administration that they don't like this. China could also do more legal things. They could file a WTO case if they think they've been treated unfairly as a member of the World Trade Organization. Um, and uh, they might also take uh, safeguard actions or other things that are sanctioned by or allowed by uh, the WTO system. I mean, there's a range of things they could do, but I'd say the informal stuff is what you're going to see earliest and perhaps most significantly in terms of sending messages to the U.S. that they're not happy and that they want uh, the U.S. to back down. And possibly, um, often without publicity, sometimes they'll do a uh, put out a big angry press release, but sometimes uh, I think they found it's more effective just to stop buying soybeans, you know, and let the lessons sink in without making a dramatic uh, uh, thing about it. Normally, the resignation of a senior White House official uh, for economics over a policy issue would be big news over a long period of time. Uh, in the Trump administration, we call that Tuesday morning, uh, in my experience. <laughs> what are some of the from, from you, you take a step back and say, okay, well, what are some of the constraining political and economic factors that might still limit the use of some of these tools? Bill, you alluded to collateral damage that may happen as a, res a result of these uh, uh, trade war uh, machinations. So what are some of the, the constraining factors that might prevent the United States uh, or China uh, from pursuing some of the very uh, more aggressive tools and, and tactics? 
Well, there are legal ones. Uh, we in China are both members of the WTO. That means we have obligations, and it means there are rules that we're supposed to adhere to. Uh, some of these actions would, um, uh, potential actions, would arguably uh, violate the rules. Um, you know, one question is whether either government cares that much about the rules, but currently we are signed up uh, and, and are committed to them. And there's a process in the WTO, a dispute settlement process, that where you, you know, you can complain about other countries if you think they're cheating. And depending upon what the president does, the Chinese might choose that route. Uh, and in turn, depending on what they do to us, uh, we might choose that route. So there's a set of legal remedies. If you're trying to ask, I was trying, that's an unfair way to put it, if you're asking what might influence the president to behave differently, um, that's a different question. I don't think WTO rules will influence him one way or the other. Uh, he is someone that has said the same thing about trade for 30 years. While he's demonstrated uh, charitably flexibility on a lot of other policies, uh, like gun control and immigration uh, recently, uh, he's been consistent uh, on trade. And I think most people who've observed him think that the, the idea that you can go in and have a conversation with him and use facts and logic to convince him that he's wrong uh, is, is a fantasy. That's not likely to happen. <laughs> Looking back uh, at a more recent episode that was kind of avert, averted, which was uh, late last year when he was talking about uh, withdrawing from NAFTA. And uh, he didn't do that, and the prevailing view seems to be that he was talked out of it, at least temporarily, maybe not permanently. And I would argue that the uh, what had the greatest effect there was the political argument, not the substantive argument. There was a parade of people that went in to see him, Farmers, uh, manufacturers, governors, members of Congress, all kinds of people. I think the argument that resonated were the governors and the other politicians who came in from red states who said, look, if you withdraw from NAFTA, <clears throat> this is going to have a terrible impact on the midterm elections. You're going to lose members of Congress, Republican members of Congress, and you're not going to win uh, blue Senate seats in North Dakota, Montana, and Missouri like you want to win. Uh, because if you, uh, if you pull out of NAFTA, the farmers are going to be very, very upset. That, I think, made a difference. It made a difference for two reasons. One, because I think being not a career politician, he listens to political advice more than he listens to other advice. Second, that did not involve telling him he was wrong. You know, it was not people telling, coming and telling him, you're wrong about NAFTA, it's a good thing. They could come in and say, you know, believe whatever you want about NAFTA. I'm just telling you that if you pull out, it's going to have these bad effects. Right. And I, I would totally agree that I think that political um, force is the strongest uh, constraint on him. Uh, but there may be two others, which I'd mention as well, um, one of which is um, markets. If, if, the, if the stock market were to plunge, you know, on a, on a series of days, not just one or two, but, you know, for an extended period, you know, he's put so much, sorry, the pun, stock in a rising stock market that, um, uh, that I think that that could give pause or at least give arguments to people on the other side around him who are saying, you know, you got to be careful about this. So that's one thing. And the other is, you know, allies and partners. I know that's not the first line of defense on these arguments, but it is 
I would say, has some impact. I mean, he, he's shown that, you know, when he, after some pretty strong language as a candidate against even, you know, strong allies of ours, you know, whether Japan or Mexico, Canada, others, um, you know, he sort of moderated some of that activity or that, that those statements, particularly when there are other problems that he has to deal with, like in Northeast Asia, the North Korean problem. Um, I think he realized he needs um, Japan, he needs South Korea, two allies. He even needs China um, on that one. And so he's moderated um, arguably some of his actions on China or at least delayed them uh, because of that. At least that's the um, – well, he tweeted about this, that he would – you know, I think he at one point said, why would I uh, bash tri- China on trade when I need them on North Korea, which was really not a well-advised uh, tweet for a lot of reasons. But um, – so I think that could have a moderating impact. The, the, the action that you mentioned that's happening as we speak today on uh, steel and aluminum imports, uh, that in particular, because it's hitting a lot of countries, including a bunch of allies, is already creating a little bit of that, uh, that sort of antibody effect, um, and, and uh, that could moderate some of these actions. And there's a third one that just occurred to me, or another one, and that's lawsuits. <laughs> the prevailing gossip on the China project, if you will, is that they're far more concerned about being sued in U.S. courts than they are about anything the Chinese are going to do. Uh, he got burned in the immigration uh, case last year, which was blocked by lawsuits. Uh, I mean, the reality is this is America. Anybody can sue anybody for anything and usually do. And no matter what he does, he's going to be sued. But uh, what I'm, I hear is going on is that one of the reasons this has taken so long is they want to make sure they have an adequate legal defense against uh, everything that they're going to propose to do. Because, you know, in rea- realistically, if someone com- comes in and gets an injunction, uh, then everything that they're, they're trying to do is going to be blocked anyway. So they want to make sure they're legally protected. And if his lawyers tell him, you know, you're going to lose on this, I think that will probably make a difference. I want to get to the issue of what might be some constraints on the Chinese side in just a minute. But you mentioned the the role of, of U.S. allies and other states uh, and, and potentially also international institutions, you know, as they start to respond to the use of these tools if a, a trade war were to, to escalate. Um, since we appear to be on the road to uh, extensive trade friction, at the very least, uh, with, with China, among others, uh, does this indicate some sort of institutional failure uh, somewhere in the international eco- economic order in, in your eyes, uh, whether you're talking about the WTO or the G20 or other actors? Yeah. I mean, I think, yes, uh, there is an a set of institutional failures. Um, I mean, let's get the G20 out of the way first. This group of 20 that, that was brought together in, uh, well, originally in the 1990s as a finance minister's group to deal with the Asian financial crisis and then was elevated to leaders level in 2008, 2009. It actually did a good job initially in restoring growth and financial stability and and stemming or heading off uh, protection, a slide into protectionism. There was great concern at that time that there might be a cycle of, uh, as Bill described earlier, a cycle of retaliation, counter-retaliation, or, or def- you know, hunkering down um, and, and uh, resort to protect- protectionist measures in the face of slowing growth. And the G20 avoided that. Since then, they've been sort of drifting, and since the, the sense of crisis has, has, um, has dissipated, and gone away, I think that there's been less um, concrete ability of the G20 as a kind of an informal group 
uh, to uh, to respond. I, I think given the, the risks today, they ought to be talking about it. And with Argentina hosting this year and Japan next, I think it should be very much on the agenda um, to talk about how to avoid a slide into 1930-style um, cycle of retaliation and counter-retaliation. Um, but then more formally, more institutionally, the WTO and Bill will have comments on this as well. I mean, the, the World Trade Organization was established in 1995 as a formalization of a, of a de facto international trade uh, system under the, the general agreements on tariff and, tariffs and trade uh, that was the sort of the, the compromise deal reached um, in the post-war Bretton Woods uh, framework set up um, when we couldn't agree on a World Trade Organization. So the World Trade Organization was set up in 1995 to, to try to uh, both negotiate new market opening and rule uh, rules for the system, but also to enforce uh, the rules and make sure that people were were following the rules. And there was a system of dispute settlement set up that, frankly, on both of those tracks, both the, the trade negotiation and trade opening um, side and on the enforcement and dispute settlement side, there have been demonstrated weaknesses. We haven't been able to negotiate a new agreement since that uh, 1995 deal despite uh, many years of effort under the so-called um, Doha Development Agenda, or Doha Round, as it's informally called. Um, and uh, for a lot of reasons, there are too many countries in the room and, you know, too many countries, you know, like, frankly, without picking on any countries, India and Venezuela and others who just aren't, you know, game to, to really open their markets and move forward. Um, so on that side, it's been, it's, you know, it's failed. And, and on the on the dispute settlement side, it, it, and maybe Bill should really take take over here, but I think there have been just a, a series of um, problems with that system that has undermined um, confidence in in that institutional structure, which is so critical to maintaining you know an open um, and vibrant uh, trading system. I don't have a lot to add to that. It, the, the the WTO is going through a a rough period, I think, which Matt has just described very well. To me, the the underlying problem with it is you've got countries, Western developed countries, who by and large designed the system and, and created it going back to the GATT in 1948 and, and the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1944, who've been really responsible for sustaining the system for all these years since. And that, as occasion meant... Uh, you know, paying costs in order to maintain the system, basically taking one for the team now and then in the interests of multilateral agreement and cooperation. And my sense is on the one side, those countries are kind of running out of gas. It's becoming politically harder for them to, uh, to make concessions in the interest of preserving the system because the politics in their home countries, this one being a good example, are increasingly on the side of taking care of your own first uh, and, you know, making country X great again. At the same time, uh, those countries, the rich developed countries, have begun to demand that the emerging economies, which really mean the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa in particular, but not only, uh, because they are the beneficiaries of globalization and the rapid growth that's occurred in the last 30 years, they ought to pay a bigger share uh, and they ought to do more to sustain the system, and they ought to be a more cooperative part of it. And the reality is, uh, you know, those countries don't want to pay the tab. Uh, and so you've got uh, negotiations that can't conclude because the developed countries are unwilling to make more concessions, 
and are expecting the new, the new countries to make more, and they're not willing to make them either. Um, I think five or ten years, you, get, you work your way through that, and you know, maturity returns, but right now we're not, we're not really there. Uh, this kind of shows itself in the dispute settlement uh, process, which uh, has really been one of the great accomplishments of, of the WTO and the Uruguay Round. It is the only, I think I can say this safely, it is the only multilateral organization that has a functioning dispute settlement process where you've got independent panels that make, that decide who was right and who was wrong, and the countries actually obey the results. Not always, not perfectly, not willingly, but by and large, yes. And it's under fire right now uh, by the Americans, mostly. Uh, largely for exceeding its authority, that, uh, you know, the panels are like little judges and they're like little Supreme Courts, basically. And like the Supreme Court, there's a debate whether they should be strict constructionists or, or adopt a more liberal interpretation, if you will. Uh, the United States uh, has taken the position that uh, the, the dispute settlement uh, panels and the appellate body in particular should be strict constructionists. They should not go beyond the letter of what was agreed to in 1994 that set this whole thing up in the first place. It was kind of ironic when the Obama administration made that argument, since they were making exactly the, ar the opposite argument with their Supreme Court appointments. Um, it's less ironic for the Trump administration to make the argument, uh, because at least they're being consistent. Uh, but it's the same argument. Uh, what, we, what the United States wants is judges that don't go beyond the letter of the agreement. And I think what most lawyers will tell you is that the judges have frequently gone beyond the letter of the agreement, um, realistically, sometimes to our advantage, but often uh, to our disadvantage. And so the system is under fire for that, and it's not clear at this point how that'll turn out. So I, I mentioned this before, but I want to get to what are some of the political and economic consequences of uh, an escalating trade war for the United States and China. But I also want to get back a little bit to this question of what are some of the constraints for the Chinese uh, in terms of uh, pre preventing these kinds of things from uh, escalating? And can we avoid escalation uh, in into a formal trade war at this point between the United States and China? Well, I'll, I'll take a first cut, and Bill, I'm sure, will have more thoughts. But I, I would say, you know, to start with your point on constraints, I mean, China still really needs us. I mean, we are the largest market for their um, you know, their production of excess capacity, things they want to export, uh, you know, from Christmas toys to steel. And, and they need that demand uh, to continue growing. Remember, China has brought six, seven hundred million people into the middle class, but they've still got another five, six hundred million to go. People are still living in abject poverty. And so they have a real growth and development challenge and a lot of internal strains from environmental to demographic. You know, they're aging fast and they um, uh, have problems with um, financial strains and so forth. So I think the Chinese are going to try to respond in a more measured way. Um, there was a Chinese official who I met with in January who used the analogy of Tai Chi, that we're going to absorb the blow and then punch back in a sort of targeted way. Um, and so I think they recognize that, that getting into an escalating trade war is, is not going to be in their interests, and they, they, will, they will try to respond in a measured way. But, you know, depending on what we do, I mean, if the Trump administration uh, moves from this um, steel and aluminum 
case to action under the Section 301 uh, case on forced technology transfer and, and intellectual property theft um, to do, you know, major new measures targeted at China, and whether tariffs or quotas or investment restrictions, China's hand may be forced and they may have to do more. Um, and just to answer the first part of your question, and then I'll turn it to Bill. Um, you know, the, the economic consequences of this, I mean, I've implied it, but, you know, for both are, are potentially very significant because, um, you know, there's going to be a cost. When you put any of these restrictions on, you're, you're going to end up um, making consumers at the end of the day, people who are on the import side of this story, um, uh, pay more uh, for things they buy um, and uh, limit competition in the market, which creates, you know, other things being equal, um, uh, lower prices. Um, and you're going to limit export opportunities on each side, which is going to deny companies profits that they roll back into further investment and wages and so forth. So there's going to be a cost on both sides um, from this and um, potentially a substantial one if there is tit for tat. Um, and then politically, finally, um, since that was part of your question, again, we each need each other politically as well to some extent because there are a lot of problems in the world, whether it's climate change or though that's not really in fashion um, on this side of the Pacific right now, but um, or uh, transnational crime or terrorism or uh, North Korea or other issues in the world where we need to on some level work together. And if we if we get into this kind of trade war or, or really serious uh, trade spat, uh, then um, you know it's going to undermine some of that other uh, work that we need to do together. So. You know, it's um, it's 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 hard to see this turning out well if it really does escalate. Um, that was really complete. A small point, and then a, a larger one. A, a small one. Sometimes the consumer costs are, even though they might be in the, in the aggregate great, they don't always have the impact that people predict that they're going to have. Uh, I noticed, you know, when, when Secretary Ross was defending the president's decision, he held up a beer can and said, well, it's going to be two or three cents, uh, uh, you know, in terms of the increased cost of the aluminum that goes into the can. Uh, and I actually asked somebody about that, and it, it turns out that's right. <clears throat> it is only going to be a few cents. And so I don't really think people are going to stop buying beer, you know, because the, if, if the price of a beer goes up two or three cents, that it's just not going to be, a, be an effect. You see this with agriculture protection, too. You know, if the, somebody says, well, we're going to put a 10% uh, tariff on tomatoes coming from Mexico. Well, you know, if, if tomatoes are, uh, uh, what, a dollar a, a dozen, well, it wouldn't be a dollar a dozen, a dollar a pound, let's say. Uh, so they're, now they're going to be a dollar ten a pound. Are people going to stop buying tomatoes? You know, it's, it's, it's an elasticity question in, in economic terms. And sometimes the elasticities are, the elasticity of beer, I suspect, is not all that great. Uh, that's sort of a small point. From my perspective, the biggest danger in the bilateral relationship is sort of mutual uh, under and overestimation. Uh, misestimation might be the better, uh, simpler word for it. <laughs> Uh, the Chinese, I think, perceive themselves as a rising power and us as a declining power, and that always creates difficult situations. Uh, there's a real risk that they will um, they will overestimate our weaknesses and underestimate our resolve and, and strength. Uh, and there's a real danger in turn that we will overestimate their weaknesses, and they've got many. Matt enumerated them. 
but uh, if we overestimate their weaknesses and underestimate their strength and resolve, uh, and we're both doing that at the same time, then we have a big problem because then we will act on the basis of erroneous assumptions. And that's what worries me more than anything. And it's why uh, more dialogue rather than less is so important so that we can kind of work our way through, uh, through the hubris and the paranoia and all the other things that come along with uh, both countries and really get a better sense of where both of us are. Both of you work in U.S. government. What is the platform for exchange? Of, you talked about this dialogue. At what level does that need to happen? Is this rise to interagency level? Does it need to go uh, up to the top level? Do we do we expect that that kind of discussion to take place at the top leadership? Matt's the expert on that. Uh, I hand that one well, to Well, I mean, I think that that you know there have been formal dialogues, um, both you know the big overriding one that uh, was in this administration briefly called the Comprehensive Economic Dialogue. It had other names in the past, but where you bring everybody together on both sides and try to hash through these issues. I think the Trump administration was not on some level wrong to think that that big sort of dog and pony show was not going to really get to the bottom of some of these uh, problems. But on the other hand, you need some sort of process because you, you have to have discussion and dialogue about, about these issues. I think in the short term, we're going to see uh, high level entreaties on both sides. You know, you had uh, a senior uh, economic policymaker, um, Xi Jinping's kind of right-hand man on economic issues, Liu He, here in Washington recently. And I think he was probably trying to figure out what the you know, what the terms of negotiation might be, you know, what we could offer, China could offer to try and um, get this to tamp down some of this um, risk um, and um, what, you know, what, um, you know, who to talk to as well. And um, I'm not sure he got full satisfaction on any of that, but um, I think you're going to see more of that and should, because I think it's important for the two leaders, representatives to be talking. If we're, if we're talking about something as serious as potential trade war, I think you're going to have to have that kind of dialogue. But then there are a thousand other things that lie beneath um, all of this that, um, that, uh, that require uh, engagement and interaction. And if you cut those off, it could raise the risk of what Bill talked about, of miscalculation, because I think you know, frankly, you're talk we're talking about trade war here, but I think all wars uh, really, in some sense, well, at least most wars, stem from this kind of miscalculation because there is a lack of a real, ability, real accurate assessment of what the other side's, um, you know, both strengths, weaknesses, um, opportunities, and threats, to talk about um, a SWOT analysis here. Um, are and and so you need to have some process of mutual discussion and, and trying to understand those things if you're going to lessen the risk of miscalculation. So so I I think we're going to have to get back to some sort of process. Um, you know, a more targeted one is probably appropriate rather than some big, as I say, dog and pony show. But um, we really uh, you know the U.S. and China have too much at stake not to be talking to each other. I can't resist. Um a story about that. I agree. I think that's exactly right. But I do remember, uh, well, I don't, I don't remember personally because it, it, it's a, an old story, but I think it was Everett Dirksen was talking about uh, in the Senate at one point about uh, someone said, you know, if we, just, if we just had a meeting, if we just talked more, we'd understand each other. And Dirksen said, well, you know, that happens sometimes. But I'll, you know, I'll tell you, uh, you know, Hitler and Stalin understood each other very well. Uh, the, but they didn't agree. And so sometimes it only takes you so far. 
in this case, I think Matt is entirely right because we really haven't done that very well, and we have a, there's a lot more ground we could cover with better dialogue. I think uh, going forward, we'll watch the space closely. I know uh, Matt, Bill, and, and the Freeman Chair as well, uh, you guys are involved in a project tackling this, so we'll watch the space uh, to see uh, what your research and uh, insights are with uh, assessing a potential U.S.-China trade war, even as it may play out over the next couple of months. Hopefully we avoid that scenario. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much uh, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. In particular with China, we're going to be doing a Section 301 trade action. It could be about $60 billion. But that's really just a fraction of what we're talking about. I've been speaking with the highest Chinese representatives, including the President, and I've asked them to reduce the trade deficit immediately by $100 billion. It's a lot. And now I'm joined by Dr. Scott Kennedy, Deputy Director of the CSIS Freeman Chair in China Studies and Director of our Project on Chinese Business and Political Economy. Scott, thanks for stopping by. Happy to talk with you. As we just heard, President Trump is imposing these penalties in the hope of reducing the U.S. trade deficit with China by, as he put it, about $100 billion. What will the Section 301 case penalties that uh, President Trump has initiated against China actually do? Well, the uh, penalties that, that he's announced uh, are of, of three kinds. The first are tariffs of 25 percent along a range of goods uh, that last year uh, totaled about twenty, about fifty billion or so in in uh, exports from China to the United States. The second are restrictions on investment, Chinese investment in the United States, and lastly, a WTO case that the U.S. just filed on Friday. Um, I think the purpose of these uh, measures is to get China's attention, uh, to put some pain on on China's economy, uh, and to uh, bring them to the negotiating table, which in fact appears uh, that we've, they've already started to uh, talking, uh, although that might not get anywhere for a while. Um, certainly this is going to, um, these, these measures are going to hurt China in some ways, um, and they may be the first of, of a series of measures over the coming months. Now, as you mentioned, there's a possibility of potential escalation as President Trump has indicated, uh, this is the first of many actions on this front. It's unclear whether he's talking about explicitly China or just general trade remedies. Now, we've already seen uh, a Chinese response to the Section 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum. In fact, the Chinese Commerce Ministry took pains to specify uh, that the response was uh, in specific to the 232 tariffs only. Could you briefly explain what the Chinese response was? Are we already spiraling into a tit-for-tat exchange if we expect a stronger Chinese response to the Section 301 measures? Sure. Certainly, um, the, the scale of China's response uh, looked like it was proportionate to what the U.S. was doing on, on steel and aluminum in terms of raising tariffs against China. Chinese steel and aluminum, those from other countries. Uh, but the timing was unmistakably made to be uh, following the 301 announcement. Uh, China announced that uh, within the next two weeks it would place tariffs between 15 and 25 percent on seven categories of American products, primarily agricultural goods uh, like uh, ginseng, um, wine, uh, as well as uh, steel pipes. Um, the reason they chose these products are because um, 
they are purely from the United States. They don't involve anybody else. There's, they're not part of larger supply chains. So there's going to be no collateral damage. China isn't going to upset Canadians, Mexicans, uh, anyone from Southeast Asia for penalizing uh, the U.S., whereas, of course, the products the U.S. are placing tariffs on has a lot of collateral damage. Uh, and it's just to throw a shot, a shot across the bow. It's also interesting that these products come from both red and blue states, California, Texas, Iowa, and you've already started to see uh, media reports, interviews with uh, some of the you know pig farmers and others who are going to be suffering. It's a way. It's China's effort to uh, sow dissension in the United States about this uh, trade conflict. And uh, certainly, if um, the U.S. eventually implements the higher tariffs on. Um, the the goods that identified last week of of around 50 billion, China's going to come back with much larger tariffs on a whole other set of products. One of the key issues that Matt and Bill flagged is the danger of miscalculation that can be present on both sides, and in turn escalate a, a trade war. From your perspective as a veteran China watcher. How could we be misreading the Chinese leadership on this issue? And is the United States ready for this confrontation? Well, there's not a chance of misreading. It's already occurred. The United States went into this battle thinking that as long as the U.S. would uh, threaten the use of tariffs and other penalties and and look serious, uh, that China would back down uh, before any shots were fired. Uh, Their view is that the Chinese leadership is extremely risk-averse and that they know that China's economy, although looks relatively stable now, that if you scratch just beneath the surface, there are major problems. So the first miscalculation was that China uh, would back down, and that's not uh, occurred. Uh, And uh, certainly on the Chinese side, they also miscalculated because they assumed that uh, Trump was a paper tiger and wouldn't go ahead with these penalties. So both sides have done so. It means that um, China's uh, already started a response. The U.S. uh, could, again, is going to announce additional penalties. And so this totally could um, escalate. to where both sides didn't expect it to go. And of course, it's also tied up with broader questions about the strategic relationship and the overall potential rivalry. Um, so uh, the I guess the other type of, of, of challenge is that they may seek a, 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 a solution that gets them out of this escalatory uh, pattern, but it may but it's very unlikely to be the type of solution that resolves the type of problems that initiated the case in the first place. It may lower the trade deficit a little bit, but it's not going to affect China Inc. It's not going to affect protection of intellectual property rights. Those are big issues uh, which the Chinese haven't shown any indication yet that they're willing to compromise on. And Scott, what's the bottom line from a, a U.S. perspective on this issue? I really wish I knew because the administration is giving two very different conflicting signals about what its ultimate goals here are. The investigation is premised on the idea that Chinese industrial policy needs to be constrained, that that uh, is a core impediment to American exports and investment in China as well as uh, hurts. Uh, global supply chains and business models um, and damages uh, the global economy's efforts to be more productive. On the, and so you would expect that 
if that's the case, the bottom line for the U.S. would be for China to liberalize, for the state to get out of the way, and that would be the measure of success. On the other hand, uh, the president has also said that what he really wants is for China to reduce the bilateral trade deficit by what he said was $100 billion. But you can do that without changing China Inc. whatsoever. You can just import uh, more LNG, more oil, a few more Boeing planes, uh, more soybeans, which would leave the bilateral deficit in perhaps a better place, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't change the fundamental structure and nature of China's economy, which most people think is the real big challenge to address. And so this muddying of the waters of what our bottom line is uh, puts the U.S. in a difficult position. It gives China actually a little bit more flexibility because they can uh, dangle uh, a little bit more market access for some of these products, and they can dangle a few modest uh, changes with industrial policy that don't get to the core of things. And we may be in a position of eventually accepting that kind of deal. So that we've gone to the mat uh, and, and gone to the, you know, started a trade war, but might short circuit it with what would be a relatively modest, simple uh, solution that would allow the U.S. to declare victory uh, without really achieving one is, is something that uh, I'm concerned about. That's our show. Special thanks to Bill Wrench and Matthew Goodman for joining us. Also, special thanks to Scott Kennedy for sharing his insights. We'll include links to written analysis from each of them, as well as the U.S. government announcements for the trade decisions we covered in this podcast, in the show notes. We welcome feedback in the form of an iTunes review and rating, or feel free to drop the producer a line via email, jbean at csis.org. The audio for this podcast was edited by Rivka Gemelingsari. The podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit kajadasia.com and csis.org. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on CSIS.org. Stop by our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site for groundbreaking analysis in Maritime Asia, and check out our latest Beyond Parallel micro-survey on what citizens of North Korea really think about their nuclear weapons program. Also be sure to listen to our latest China Power podcast with Bonnie Glazer and Dr. Evan Ellis on China's engagement with Latin America and the Caribbean states. I'm Will Colson. Thanks for listening.